We'll take your Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians and we're going to return to the text that we began last week and I noted that this is one of uh, probably the most well-known passages in this letter, this beloved letter and uh, that Paul wrote to the, to the church in Philippi and this is maybe uh, some of your favorite verses here. Uh, in this letter, and so there's so much truth here that I thought would be would be good for us just to camp out here for a little bit and to not rush through uh, these verses because there's so much practical application here for us uh, as believers. And so let's reread this text, Philippians chapter four, starting in verse four and reading through verse nine. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. God, we come to you this morning um, as the God of peace. We know that in your presence there is perfect peace, perfect serenity and tranquility, and you want us to enjoy that same kind of peace, even here in this chaotic world in which we live, and it just seems that we live in these verses, that this is what our day-to-day lives often look like, and, and there's such helpful truth here for us to live by. And so would you grant us grace to understand uh, what these verses mean and how they uh, apply to our lives so that we can be uh, all that you want us to be and can enjoy uh, the peace that you promised us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning I want to take a simple survey to find out what sins we all struggle with the most. That sound fun? You guys in? Are you up for this? Well, let's just stick with the list of what are commonly known as the seven deadly sins. And so, by a show of hands, and nobody's forcing you on this, okay, this is between you and the Lord, but just, just curious, based on a show of hands, how many of you struggle with pride? Okay? How many of you struggle with envy? Okay? Appreciate the honesty going on this morning. How many of you struggle with gluttony? Somebody already raised their hand. They knew with the next one that was coming. Yep. Or maybe they're just, I'm just going to keep my hand up, okay? How many of you struggle with lust? How about anger? How about greed? How about sloth, laziness? You're so lazy you couldn't even raise your hand. 
How about this? One last question. How many of you struggle with worry or anxiety? Why did that seem a lot easier to raise our hands on that last one? Some of you were really questioning, should I really like admit that I'm prideful? Should, should I really admit that I'm like greedy? Should I really admit that I struggle with lust? Oh, worry? Yeah, count me in. I'm good on that one. Well, why is that? I mean, it's embarrassing to admit the sins we struggle with, but, but it, some sins are easier to admit than others. And wouldn't you agree? Worry and anxiety is just one of those sins. It's, it's one of the most common sins we commit, and because of its commonness, I think it's lessened the, the seriousness of it in our minds as Christians. And, and because so many of us struggle with it, we feel less guilty about it. It would qualify as one of the respectable sins. Oh, you struggle with worry? Yeah, me too. Jerry Bridges wrote a book called Respectable Sins, and worry and anxiety was one of the chapters. And so there is a sense that we don't feel as guilty about worry as we do about some of these other deadly sins. In fact, some don't think we should feel guilty about worry at all. They would have us believe that worry and anxiety is not our fault. It's a mental disorder caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain that millions of people suffer from that that can be treated and even alleviated with medication. I know this is a very sensitive, sensitive subject because you or someone you love has possibly been diagnosed with some kind of disorder related to anxiety, fear. Maybe they're being treated with some kind of medication. Maybe you're taking some medication related to some kind of anxiety disorder. But I I just want to get you to think with me a little bit this morning about this phenomenon, which, by the way, is a recent phenomenon. And uh, I don't know if you've noticed this, this, this emergence in the last few years of, of this thing called anxiety disorders. Uh, the Houston Chronicle recently ran an article called Stressed Out. And this is what it said, quote, anxiety disorders are the most common mental illnesses in the United States, affecting more than 26 million people each year, according to the National Mental Health Association. They are also the most treatable, doctors say, but only if they're diagnosed properly. We, I think, have grown used to seeing commercials on TV and special ads in magazines for drugs like Zoloft and Paxil, and our modern culture has adopted a whole new set of terms like panic attacks and PTSD and OCD and social anxiety disorder, separation anxiety disorder, and I could go on and on with all these kind of anxiety disorders. And granted, psychologists have done a good job of observing and describing the symptoms that people experience. Let me give you an example. Listen to this definition of a panic attack. A panic attack 
is in an unexpected attack of fear, anxiety, or discomfort with at least four or more of the following symptoms. Fast heart rate or pounding heart, chest pain, sweating, trembling or shaking, shortness of breath or feeling of smothering, nausea, dizziness, numbness, or tingling. Now I'd imagine if I went around the room and asked you, most of us at one point or another in some situation um, experience some of these symptoms in, in, a, in, a, in a stressful or a, a fearful moment. Who hasn't got sweaty palms at some, at, at some time when you were maybe had to get up in front of a crowd and, and speak or you got you know, beads of perspiration on your forehead or you just kind of locked up or you felt sick to your stomach, you got knots in your stomach and and, and so we, 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 we get this. It, it seems that, yeah, we, we, we know what it's like to be in a stressful, fearful moment, and, and it has physical effects on us. And, and so it would be easy to assume that, that the psychologist must be right. If their description is accurate, and it seems like they nailed the description, you just described what it's like for me, what I've experienced. So, so if their description is accurate, then it must also be safe to assume that their diagnosis is accurate along with their prescription. And yet the psychology industry, and it is an industry, is notorious for coming up with labels for specific sins that are clearly described in God's word and then directing people away from the biblical solutions to pharmaceutical ones. And so consequently, people don't have to take responsibility for their sin and nor do they feel convicted about their sin. And, and so sadly, they're consigned to live the rest of their lives on some medication and remain forever trapped in their sin. Now, I'm not saying that for those of you that are on some kind of medication that you're in sin because you're on medication. I'm not saying that. I'm just suggesting to you here that to think biblically about what might be happening uh, in your life and, uh, and really ask the question, why is it that so many people today, including devout Christians who go to good churches, seem to so quickly and wholeheartedly accept the whole psychological thinking that has become so common uh, in our culture today? The sin of worry never made it on the list of deadly sins. And yet medical doctors have confirmed the harmful physical effects of worry. Headaches, stomach aches, ulcers, heart attacks, high blood pressure, insomnia. People are literally worrying themselves to death. And while the sin of worry may not kill you, it will destroy the quality of your life. It'll make your life miserable. It, it robs you of joy, peace, Contentment, it strangles your faith, it hinders your, your usefulness and effectiveness. And I, I bring all that up because here in this passage, Paul provides a biblical prescription for worry, or as we've been talking about, for peace, which is really that this passage is a much needed alternative to the diagnosis and the drugs being prescribed in the psychological culture in which we live. The heart of this passage is in verses 7 and verse 9. And the peace of God, 
which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And you could add in that line against panic attacks. Just to get practical here. Kind of front load this with some application. And then verse 9, the things which you've learned and received and heard and seen me practice these things and the God of peace will be with you so you don't have to freak out or stress out. So this is all about experience the peace of God from the God of peace. But in order for us to enjoy or experience these these promises of peace, we need to obey the principles of peace that Paul laid out in this text. And in verses 4 through 9, I mentioned this last week, that there are six imperatives, six commands. All but one of them are in the present tense, which, which indicates that these are commands we need to follow, not just once or every once in a while, but regularly, continually, habitually. And so like a skilled physician, Paul provided the Philippians and us with a prescription for peace. And there's, there's five steps in his treatment plan that if carefully followed will alleviate all of our fears and anxieties along with all of our guilt and shame. We began last week looking at the first step, and that is to be joyful all the time. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Literally, Paul says to keep on rejoicing. Be joyful, be cheerful, not just some of the time or even most of the time, but all the time, regardless of how you're feeling or what you're facing. And Paul was a great example of, of what that looks like, to rejoice no matter what happens to you. And and, and, I, and I didn't mention this last week, but, but the fact that Paul commanded us to rejoice proves that joy is not a mood, it's not a, an emotion. You can't command somebody to have a different mood or, 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 or an emotion. Joy is not a mood or emotion based on our feelings, our circumstances, our surroundings. It's an attitude that we can control. It's a choice we can make. You say, man, that's a hard choice to make sometimes, to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Well, the secret to rejoicing or maintaining a joyful attitude at all times is in that simple phrase, in the Lord. In other words, Paul didn't say to rejoice in your circumstances, rejoice in the fact that you just lost your spouse to death or that you just found out that one of your children has cancer or, or, or you just, you know, got laid off from work. He doesn't say rejoice in that. He says rejoice in the Lord. And so biblical joy is based on what we know to be true about God. In other words, no matter how awful things might be in our lives, there's always something wonderful about God that we can rejoice in, starting with our salvation. The fact that he saved us. We should also rejoice In his goodness, his faithfulness, his grace, his love, his wisdom, his sovereignty, his justice, fill in the blank with all that you know to be true about God. And and it really comes down to this. How much peace we experience is directly proportionate to how much we know God. You can't trust someone you don't know. And so if our joy is in the Lord rather than in what happens to us, then ideally our attitude should never change because the Lord never changes. Just like the song we just sang, Unchanging. The psalmist modeled joy in the Lord and and demonstrated that the, the key to always being joyful is always being in the presence of the Lord. That's the key. That's the secret. 
Psalm 1611, in your presence is fullness of joy. I, I think I shared this last week, but that verse, whenever I read that, is so convicting because I think, okay, if I'm not joyful, if I'm discouraged, if I'm depressed, that's, that, that it's obvious that I'm not spending time in God's presence because if I was, was, was spending time in God's presence or living in God's presence, that I would be joyful because you can't be any other way in the presence of the Lord because in His presence is fullness of joy. So it exposes whenever I get discouraged, depressed, and I'm not rejoicing in my situation or circumstance, it's because I've lost sight of the Lord, I'm not spending time in His presence. Psalm 21, 6, you make Him joyful with gladness in your presence. Psalm 43, 4, then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. Notice it's God who is exceeding joy, not my bank account, not my marriage that's going so well, or not whatever is going well in your life. No, that's not my exceeding joy. God is my exceeding joy. And he never changes. So he should always be my exceeding joy, no matter what's changing in my life. And so a challenging lead-off command or step here to rejoice in the Lord always, again, I will say rejoice. And so, first of all, be joyful all the time. You want to have peace? and not be anxious, then rejoice in the Lord. Secondly, treat everyone graciously. Treat everyone graciously. Notice verse 5. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Now, I have to be honest with you. For years, I've read this verse in the context of this passage and it's always just seemed out of place to me. In, in, the, in this series of commands that we need to obey in order to ex- experience peace. And I would usually just kind of breeze over it, briefly mention it, because it, it just didn't appear to me to be that significant compared to the verses that surrounded it. And apparently, there's a lot of other people who think the same way because this verse is not a verse that many people memorize and quote often like the verses all around it. I mean, how many people have you heard, quote, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice, or be anxious for nothing, but in all things, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your arm. Whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is pure, let your mind dwell on these things, right? I mean, those are the verses that we have, have gravitated to and that we have memorized and that give us such hope. When's the last time you heard somebody quote, let your gentle spirit be known to all. The Lord is near. I, I never memorized that verse. But as I've studied this passage over the last couple of weeks and, and really meditated on this verse and, and, and tried to put it into practice in my own life, I think I'm beginning to understand how critical Paul's point here is. Think about this with me. What, one, of the, one of the things that, that has the potential to cause stress in our lives or make us anxious or nervous or frustrate us or disturb us or, or get us agitated or riled up is what? Other people. Survey says what? What robs your joy, what robs you, you of peace, 
more than anything else? One of the top three answers has to be other people. Particularly what other people say or do to us or what they don't say or do to us. And so oftentimes in our, in our home or at work or at school or in some other social setting, we, we find ourselves being around people that we may not particularly care for. Um, we're required to interact with people who, may not, who we, may not get along, we may not get along too well with or, or maybe who we've had a falling out with in the past or who, we, who have said or done hurtful things to us or, or, or we're, we're just not sure what they think of us. You ever been in a situation like that? You're kind of mingling in a crowd of people and it's just kind of awkward. And, and, and it's, it's just kind of a little, making you a little anxious, a little stressful. Or you're getting angry and bitter towards them, thinking about what they may have done. And again, th- this could very well be an awkward, unsettling experience unless you keep in mind and follow this simple command that Paul gave in verse 5. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The operative term, obviously, is gentle. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. This, this Greek word is, is just chock full of meaning, and, and commentators vary widely in how they translate this word in order to capture its rich meaning. So let me just give you some examples. Here are some of the translations. For let your gentle spirit be known to all. Uh, yieldedness, sweet reasonableness, a, a willingness to give up your personal rights, not insisting on getting your own way, not making unreasonable demands on people, overlooking others' faults, having a patient, forbearing spirit, not harboring bitterness or ill feelings in your heart toward others, not getting all worked up when someone wrongs you or defrauds you, not seeking to get even with them. Are you beginning to see how practical this is? William Tyndale, back in 1525, I think it was, translated this when he was translating the scriptures. He said, let your softness be known to all men. I'm particularly fond of the definition in in the linguistic key to the Greek New Testament. It says this, this word signifies a humble, patient, steadfastness which is able to submit to injustice, disgrace, and maltreatment without hatred and malice, trusting God in spite of all of it. And I think the point here is that too often we fail to to trust God when it comes to the way others talk about us or or treat us, and we let their words and, and actions get us stirred up and stressed out and sometimes even scared. What are they going to say next? What are they going to do next? And as a result, we, we tend to react harshly and defensively rather than responding graciously the way Christ did, even toward his enemies. 1 Peter 2.23, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. There was a, a softness, if you will, to Jesus as he endured all that he did at the hand of his enemies. We know that Christ was meek and, and gentle in his relationships with other people. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am what? Gentle and humble in heart. 
Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10.1, he said, I myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, Paul told Timothy, the Lord's bondservant, in other words, if you are Christ's servant, slave, you must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient with wrong, with gentleness, correcting those in opposition. This was a qualification for an elder. It is a qualification for an elder, 1 Timothy 3 verse 3, that they need to be gentle. Uh, It was also a a trait of an older man, that an older godly man in Titus chapter 3, verse 2, should be peaceable, gentle and peaceable. Jesus himself said, blessed are the peacemakers. Look at Romans chapter 12 for a second. This is a familiar passage about how to make peace with your enemies. Romans chapter 12, verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, as far as it depends on you, be at what? Peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so there's just a graciousness here. Even with those who don't like you, who, as that song said, despise you. You just be gracious to them. And so based on these verses, the, the, the Christ-like way to respond to others when you're tr- tempted to, to, by their ill treatment, to be agitated or get even, right? It's to be gracious. And Paul provides one other thought that I think is is helpful to remember. And when we remember this, it it will help us respond graciously to others. What is it? Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is what? Near. The Lord is near in both space and time. He's present at all times and in all places. This is uh, maybe a reference Paul may have had in mind, the omnipresence of God, that he, he, he's the silent witness of every conversation, of every interaction. He's keeping track. He's keeping score. You don't have to. He knows what people say. He knows what people do. He knows what you say, and he knows what you do. And so he may have been thinking about the omnipresence of, of God. He may have been referring to the imminence of the Lord's return. Seems like that's the context. Um, in light of Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, he talks about, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Again, in verse 10, he's praying that they would be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Chapter 3 just got done talking about how our citizenship is in heaven, uh, from which we 
eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, um, either way, whether it's talking about Christ's imminent return or God's uh, ongoing omnipresence, uh, I think the better we understand both of these things, the, the omnipresence of God and the imminence of Christ's return, uh, the, the more peace we will have. The Old Testament talks a lot about God being near. Um, maybe I'll just read one, one passage, Psalm 145. Psalm 145, verse 18. The Lord is near to all who call upon Him, to all who call upon Him in truth. Uh, there's many Psalms that talk about this. I think the point is that it, it, should, it should just settle our hearts. We're talking about how interacting with people can be an, un, 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 be an unsettling experience at times. And so what should settle our hearts and our minds? It's knowing that God is right there with us, no matter where we are, no matter who we're with, God is right there with us. And also, it's, it's settling to know that, that Christ is coming back very soon to judge all men. And we will be vindicated or delivered from whatever adverse treatment or circumstances we might be facing. And so that should motivate us to continue to patiently endure whatever suffering, whatever persecution that we face without retaliation or revenge. James chapter 5, verse 7. James said, therefore be patient. These were, he was writing to Jews who were scattered uh, all over Asia Minor. They were being persecuted. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your heart for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. In other words, you're, sitting, you're standing there in your house, at your work, at your school, in that awkward social setting, wherever it is, and you're, you're kind of feeling a little nervous, a little unsettled uh, by the people you're interacting with, and, and all you need to do is go look at any of the doors in the room and go, you know what, the Lord could come through that door at any second. He's, he's near. He's right there. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job, and you have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. And guess what? We should exemplify our Father God who is compassionate and is merciful. We should be compassionate and merciful to others as well. I think we can learn a lot from the example of David. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 16, one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament when David was uh, really uh, leaving uh, Jerusalem with his mighty men. And as he was leaving one of Saul's loyalists, uh, really a family member of Saul named Shimei, began to curse him and criticize him. This is Second uh, Samuel chapter 16, verse 5. When King David came to Barim, 
Behold, there came out from there a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. He came out cursing continually as he came. He threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were at his right hand and at his left. And this guy was bold, brazen even. I mean, it'd be one thing to throw rocks at, at David, but to throw rocks at David and his mighty men? I mean, these guys were notorious for like, taking people's heads off and, you know, just being fearless and in, 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 in fierce in their loyalty to David. Thus Shimei said when he cursed, get out, get out, you men of bloodshed and worthless fellow. The Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. And behold, you are taken in your own evil for you are a man of bloodshed. And so he was having to flee his own palace because his son Absalom had rebelled and so Shimei was just saying now you deserve it you're just getting what what you had coming to you this is payback time and here's David brokenhearted having to flee from his his rebellious son and then as I mentioned about these mighty men then Abishai verse 9 the son of Zeruiah said to the king why should this dead dog curse my lord the king let me go over now and cut off his head that's a mighty man for you. But listen to what, the, what David said. What have I to do with you, O sons of Zeruiah? If he curses, and if the Lord has told him, curse David, then who shall say, why have you done so? David's suggesting, well, hey, maybe God's telling him to do this. In other words, he was uh, recognizing that God was sovereign over all criticism. Then David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my son who came out from me seeks my life. How much more now this Benjamite? Let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him. Talk about a strong conviction about God sovereignly ordaining everything, even people cursing you. Perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction and return good to me instead of his cursing this day. And so David and his men went on the way, and Shimei went along on the hillside, parallel with him, and as he went, he cursed and cast stones and threw dust at him. The king and all the people were with him, uh, were with him, arrived weary, and he refreshed himself there. I mean, that must have just been a wearisome journey, having this guy heckling him the whole time. But David never retaliated. In fact, when David returned to his city after Absalom had been killed, guess who met him at the gate? Shimei. Hat in hand. In fact, he fell on his face before him and said, David, I am so sorry. I should have never said the things I said to you. And what do you think David said? I forgive you. Don't sweat it. Talking about being compassionate, being merciful, being gracious to everyone, even those who may hurt you deeply and say all sorts of mean things about you. Treat them graciously. And, and so the point is, that's how you experience peace. You can get all riled up if you want. You can get all agitated if you want. Them are fight words. Let's go. 
You want a piece of me? You want a piece of this, right? You can, you're, but you're not going to enjoy the peace of God if you just respond graciously. I've been asked um, from time to time, people who have been wronged, people who have been defrauded, whether or not they should take the matter to court. And obviously, 1 Corinthians 6 says that believers should not sue uh, believers, a fellow believer, right? That's obvious. They weren't asking about that. This was a situation where they were wronged by a company or by uh, uh, another situation where it was, they, they had biblical grounds, if you would. Uh, they were not violating Scripture by trying to get restitution for the way they were mishandled or the situation was mistreated, you know, whether it's a medical situation or a hospital or whatever but it was going to have to go to a lawsuit. And I'd say, hey, listen, you, you can do that if you want, and that's between you and the Lord, but do you, you have to know ahead of time that you're going to experience all sorts of frustration and, and, and be tempted to be anxious and, and, and angry, and, and, and just it could go on for months. Do you really want to have to deal with this situation for that many? Is it really going to be good for you spiritually? And so I just kind of lean them, push them in that direction that, yeah, you, it's fine for you to do that as long as you are willing to, to deal with the, the potential lack of peace that you're going to experience for the next, however long it's going to take for you to go through this trial or this court case. So the point is be gracious. Be gracious to everyone. Let's look at the third step here, the third step, and I think we have time to to cover this one this morning. Worry about nothing, pray about everything. Worry about nothing, pray about everything. And this is probably the most well-known verse in this section. And Paul just simply says, be anxious for nothing. That's a command, by the way. That's an imperative. That's not an option. That No, no, don't be anxious about anything. Jesus gave the same command to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. Turn turn back to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. I want you to see this with your own eyes. Uh, Again, a very familiar passage. Jesus talking to his disciples saying, this is what you're to be like. If you're going to be one of my followers, you're going to be set apart from the world. And one of the ways you're going to be set apart from the world is is the fact that you're not going to worry like the world worries. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. that They, they do not sow uh, nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? That's a verse to put to memory and to quote to yourself from time to time when you're tempted to worry. How can you, how is this going to change anything? You're worrying about it, it doesn't change a thing. And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? 
that really gets to the root of the issue, right? In other words, worry exposes a lack of faith. You know, there are only two options. You can either worry or trust God. You pick which one you want to do. Do not worry, verse 31, then, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So, conclusion, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I read that passage because not only is worry a waste of time, because it doesn't change a single thing, more importantly, more significantly, it exposes our lack of faith in God's promises and power to care for us and provide for us. Again, when when we're worrying, we are not trusting God. It's as simple as that. And so the question is, what is the most basic way that we demonstrate trust in God or dependence on God? Prayer. Prayer is our declaration of dependence upon the Lord. And that's why Paul says, be anxious for nothing, but instead of worrying, being anxious in everything, By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In other words, instead of worrying about stuff, pray about it. Nothing is too big or too small to bring to the Lord in prayer. Whether you're dealing with the painful loss of a loved one or the forgetful loss of your keys. Big and small. Talk to the Lord about it. Be specific. Lord, do you know how I'm feeling right now? I'm grieving right now. I miss this person. Lord, you know. Be specific. Pray about it. Lord, you... I did it again, Lord. I lost my keys. I misplaced my keys. You know where they are. You're you're looking at them right now. You can see exactly where they are. Would you direct me to those, right? You're like, yeah, I've prayed that prayer before. There's nothing too big or too small. But notice he says, don't miss this. He says, but everything by prayer and supplication with what? Thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. So whenever we pray about something that we're tempted to worry about, we need to thank God, I think, first of all, for the opportunity to trust him. God, thank you for this opportunity to trust you. Because I'm being tempted right now to worry about this. And I'm feeling the anxiety coming on. But thank you for this opportunity to learn to trust you more. I think we need to thank him for the situation or the circumstance that we find ourselves in because we know that whatever God has ordained for our lives, it's ultimately for his glory and our good. So we can thank him for that. I think we can thank God for being faithful to us in the past. Lord, you've proved yourself faithful in the past. You've provided for me in the past when I didn't know how we were going to afford this or that. Thank him for your present blessings. I'm sure there's plenty of things in your life you can thank him for presently. And, and thank him in advance that he will hear, he will answer your request. Those of you that read The Hiding Place, 
written by Corey Ten Boone, who spent um, months in in uh, German um, prison camps because of harboring Jews and and uh, just horrid conditions. And she and her sister were were there together, and they were in this barracks that was infested with fleas. And one day, her sister overheard her praying. Corey Ten Boone praying, God, thank you for the fleas. And her sister was like, what? How can you be thankful for these fleas? And Corey Ten Boone said, well, listen, do the guards ever come in here? No, because they know there's fleas in here. They don't come in here. And so we can freely study God's word and have Bible study in here. We need to thank God for the fleas. It's a great attitude. So be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Again, it may be that we begin our request before we ever make a request. The first request is, Lord, forgive me for my anxious thoughts. Forgive me for the sin of worry. And then go on to make your requests. I think the spirit of this whole verse here, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. It's, a, it's as if that you just live in an attitude of prayer, that, that prayer is just pervasive in your life. You're just constantly bringing your requests before his throne. It's like you're having an ongoing conversation with God all day. As you're waking up, as you're getting dressed, as you're maybe in the shower, as you're you know, brushing your teeth, as you're driving to work, as you're cooking breakfast, as you're maybe on your lunch break or, or, or you're out for your jog or whatever you do, you're just constantly praying and talking to the Lord about everything that's going on in your life. First Thessalonians 5.17, Paul said, pray without what? Ceasing. And everything give thanks, he says, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. I think Daniel is a good example for us of one who prayed without ceasing, particularly when he was in um, situations that could have made anyone anxious or, or fearful. Uh, you remember in Daniel chapter 2, uh, when uh, Daniel uh, was told by Nebuchadnezzar's henchmen that um, Nebuchadnezzar was mad at all the all the, 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 the um, Chaldeans and the, the um, guys who were supposed to interpret his dreams, and they couldn't interpret the dream. They couldn't even tell him what he dreamed, and, and so he was just going to kill them all, including David, or, excuse me, Daniel and his, and his three buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so Daniel said, hey, give me some time so that I can declare the interpretation of the king. And so in chapter 2, verse 17, then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Here comes Daniel running back from the palace and runs into the dorm room and says, hey guys, we got to pray. <laughs> because I just told the king we, we, would, uh, we would tell him what his dream meant and I have no clue what his dream is. And, uh, but if we don't, we're going to die off with our heads. Let's pray. Daniel chapter 6, you remember 
Daniel's companions or, or fellow workers, if you will, the, the, the fellow commissioners and, and satraps, they didn't like him because he was kind of the, the king's favorite, Darius's favorite, and so they were looking for a way to undermine his, his, his career and, and basically get him killed, uh, kind of get him, get him, remove him from their lives, and so they began to look for a way to accuse him, something to accuse him of. And so they came up with this plan, hey, let's get Darius to sign a decree that nobody can pray to anyone else but him for a month. And then we'll have him, because we know Daniel. He goes three times a day, he opens up his windows to Jerusalem, and he prays, we got him. Darius signs a document, verse 10, of this, this is Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he knew exactly what that document was intended for, what it said, what the consequences were, if he were to continue to pray like he always did. It says, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, so he had, just as he had been doing previously. What a great example. Talk about a, a, a fearful situation uh, uh, that would cause anyone to be anxious, and yet, what did he do? He, he prayed with thanksgiving. He let his request be made known to God. Notice back in Philippians, it says, let your request be known to your friends. Is that what it says in your Bible? Let your request be made known to who? To God. Now, it's a small point, but I think sometimes we're guilty of running to others before we run to God. Or maybe that's just me. Do you ever do that? Something happens, and before you pray, you're talking to somebody else about it. Chuck Swindoll, I thought, made a great point in his little commentary on Philippians. He said, quote, we worry, we complain, we vent our frustrations, we become depressed, we recite our troubles to others around us, but the problem never gets resolved. Why? What is it that we're missing? What is it that we're doing that keeps defeating us? We're talking but never praying. We spend all our time bringing our hurts and frustrations just to our friends instead of to the Lord as well. Not that he can't use our friends to help us, but going to them is no substitute for coming to him. In fact, going to our friends can become a subtle way of avoiding the Father and actually dealing with the problem. We say we're seeking help when what we're really seeking is another opportunity to vent our anger at the person who has hurt us and again, a little more sympathy and gain a little more sympathy. Could this be happening to you, he questions. Is there a particularly worrisome situation in your life right now? How many times already have you talked it out with friends? How about the Lord? Have you been as honest about your pain, desire, and need with God as you have been with your best friend? He says we really are. We really are. And that's why sometimes we miss the peace that he promises in verse 7. Let your request be made known to God and the peace of God. Right? If you want God's peace, you're not necessarily going to get it from your friends. Although there is that level of comfort, 2 Corinthians 1, talking about we can comfort one another. But in this context, he's saying, hey, if you want the peace of God, you've got to go to God. You've got to make your request known to God. And when you do, the peace of God 
which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the, the, the inner tranquility, the serenity that, that, is, that, that God desires to be in the heart of every believer as we walk closely with him. We rely on him to take care of our needs. This is the same peace that God himself possesses in his holy presence in heaven. The perfect peace relationship he enjoys with the other members of the Trinity. And, and this is the kind of peace which he says, which surpasses all comprehension. In other words, unbelievers can't understand it. Believers can't even explain it. How's that? Unbelievers can't understand it. How you can be so at peace in the midst of the, the difficult circumstances you're facing, uh, the, the awful tragedy you're facing. How can you be at peace? I don't get it. And then when you go to try to explain it, you, you can't even explain it. It's surprising even to you. There's, a, there's an element of mystery about this peace of God. It's why? It's supernatural. It's not normal. It's not something you can just kind of Oh, work really hard and achieve it. No, it's something, it's a gift from the Lord. Notice he says this, this, this peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Based on that, Phrase, I would be much more comfortable saying that if you struggle with anxiety, it, it's not so much what's going on in, the, in your hormones, if you will, but what's going on in your heart and your mind. In other words, it, it, it doesn't say anything about chemical imbalances here. It talks about what's going on in your heart and your mind. That's where the key is, is figuring out, hey, why am I feeling this way? And why are these symptoms? Why am I experiencing these symptoms? Well, what's going on in my heart, mind, same thing, right? What's going on in my heart right now? And so Paul promised here that the peace of God, this peace that God provides us through our relationship with Christ, notice it's in Christ, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So those of us who are in Christ, God promises to give us this peace that acts like a sentry or a, a squad of Roman soldiers who's assigned to protect or guard a certain place or a particular person. And so God, God's peace protects and guards our hearts and our minds against anxiety attacks, attacks of anxiety, phobias, despair, Remember, Paul was, was chained to a, a Roman guard, not just any guard, but the members of the Praetorium Guard, Caesar's own bodyguard, if you will. And, and, and so just like the members of this Praetorian Guard took their turns keeping Paul under constant surveillance during his house arrest, so the peace of God remains constantly vigilant over his beloved children. And, and by the way, we work really hard and we go to great lengths in an effort to experience peace of mind by guarding and protecting our lives and our stuff. We have alarm systems and watchdogs and floodlights and guard shacks and watchmen and, right? 
Why? Because we want to feel safe. We want to feel protected. And even so, how much peace we experience doesn't depend on any of these things. It depends on whether we're panicking or we're praying. And the more prayer in your life, the more peace you will have. And I think the the key here is, is learning how to turn our cares into prayers. Turning our cares into prayers. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And so, practically speaking, what, what are some of the things that, that are weighing heavy on your heart right now? What are, what are some things that are causing you to be anxious or fearful? I would encourage you to make a list of everything that you're worrying about right now in your life. And then turn that into a prayer list that you can pray through. And I would also suggest maybe you get another person to hold you accountable to not talk about these things with anyone but God. We all know and love that old hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Here it is. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Let's pray. Father, this is so helpful, so practical. Not hard to understand, but not so easy to apply. To worry about nothing and pray about everything. Lord, we even know that principle. I don't think anybody of any of us have heard anything new today. We know this. And the challenge is for us to do it. And so, Lord, would you grant us grace to rejoice in you always, to just to be gracious to everyone, regardless of whether or not they're gracious to us. And, Lord, that you would make us a, a praying church, a praying people, that um, all the trials and challenges and frustrations and agitations and anxieties of our lives would just drive us into your presence in prayer. And that as we're there, on our knees in your presence, that we would experience your joy and your peace that is unmeasured and that we would be able to leave your presence uh, with the glow um, and with the, the, the confidence that you are in control and uh, that you know what's best and that you love us and that you're working all things out in our lives for your glory and our good, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.